I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi, everyone. The Karen Lewis Eating Disorder Center is expanding throughout the country. If you are an experienced, well-trained therapist with lived experience whose clinical approach aligns with the values represented in these podcast episodes, or if you are seeking treatment, we would love to hear from you. Please go to our website, karenlewisedc.com. All right, everyone, here we go. This is an incredible episode. My guest for today is Dr. June Alexander. And June is doing incredible things in the field of eating disorders right now. And she is doing it from having experienced her eating disorder from age 11 to age 55. This is an incredible story. There is nobody who cannot recover. There is nobody who has had it so long that that it's impossible. It's hard, but you can do it. So I just want everyone to hear this story. So let's jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I know I say this every week, but I am so incredibly honored to introduce you all to our guest for today, June Alexander. June, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Karen. I'm very pleased to be with you today. Well, I actually, what you should be saying is good morning because your time in Australia, it is 4 a.m. that you got up for this interview. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. June, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, so yes, I, I live in Australia. I live in the state of Victoria, which is in the southeastern corner. I am 70 years old, and I developed anorexia nervosa when I was 11 years old. Today, I um, am a, a mother of four and a grandmother of five. My life has been very much shaped by my eating disorder. Besides the eating disorder, though, I've very, been very fortunate to have had a love of writing and words from a very young age. And together with the eating disorder, really, really shaped my life. Yeah, has made me the person who I am today. And the person who you are today is somebody who didn't recover until you were 55 years old. 
And what a gift, June, to have you on this show. I work with clients in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they think it's too late. I've had it for too long. I have no other identity. I'm just going to manage it. Can you share a little bit about your story? And you somewhere said that it's not about managing. doesn't matter how old you are. There is a whole life to live out there and you can fully recover. So can you share with listeners a little bit about your story? Yes, I definitely, um, for everyone listening who has been struggling for a while, I want you to know that you can heal, you can regain your quality of life, and you can gain your freedom from this eating disorder. I developed the eating disorder at a very at a young age but I was in my early 30s before I was able to access a health professional who could see my illness be behind all the layers of who I was at that time. I, I was diagnosed with chronic anxiety and depression as well as anorexia nervosa so after like uh, 20 years had passed, uh, the illness had had a long time to um, embed itself in my brain. Of course, this was happening in the 1960s, 1970s, when there wasn't so much understanding of, of, the, of what causes an eating disorder or what even what it was. And I was also growing up in a country area, I wasn't in a big city. And so any any knowledge was even more scarce. You know what? I don't I don't mean to interrupt, but I have to interrupt, June. Sorry. This is evidence that there's never one thing that goes into an eating disorder. And a lot of it has to do with our genetic predispositions because you grew up in an area, correct me if I'm wrong, there was no television there were no magazines, there was obviously no social media, like you grew up literally in the country and were not exposed to any of this, yet still developed an eating disorder. And forgive me for interrupting so quickly, but I just wanted to make sure we got that across. And if you have any thoughts about that. That's definitely right. I, I grew up even in a house with no electricity <laughs> uh, until I was, um, until after my eating disorder had developed. So um, it, it, and I grew up on a dairy farm um, where uh, it was idyllic. It was a beautiful valley, um, river flowing through it, bushland around, you know, it's the last place you would expect to, uh, to see an eating disorder. And that made it, I guess more difficult for people to understand why why I had suddenly lost so much weight, and certainly it was very embarrassing for my mother, who you know country country women uh, would especially be very proud of their cooking, and uh, and I was refusing to eat. But this goes to show, though, that the causes for me were had nothing to do with the outside world, but it was more. I guess, like <clears throat> like many uh, or some some people who develop anorexia nervosa, I had anxiety before the eating disorder developed, and I was actually um, I was the second daughter, 
I think my mother had wanted a boy and she had called me Tim uh, and Toby, Tim when I'm good, Toby when I was not so good. And they're the words that I remember my mum's voice um, from when I was very young. So when I started to develop breasts, I just turned 11. I was almost 10 when I got my first period, which I had not been told about either. So that was a shock. And I thought the world, the, you know, the, the sky had fallen in the day. My mother brought attention to the fact that I'd started to bleed. And then, uh, I mean, I was at a very small school, only 24 children in the whole school. Um, and yes, I was the only girl with, with, with breasts. And then the school doctor was coming. My cousin was the school teacher. <laughs> and this little one-room school had these lattice windows all around. I was terrified of undressing in front of the other children and also terrified that my cousin might see me. And I tried to tell my mother and sister that I didn't want to see the doctor, but I was told not to be silly. So I had to manage this on my own somehow. I didn't know what to do. I just remember so clearly though, that one day I was sitting on the, on the grass of the school ground and I suddenly felt a little less anxious. I don't know, but it was something that went ping in my brain right then. And from that moment on, I, I started to eat less and exercise more. So I developed restrictive anorexia nervosa. I do remember we used to have these little uh, booklets that we would have things like health and geography and things. I can still see one page today, almost 60 years later. I can still see it in my mind's eye. It had um, the word calories on it. And it was like a magnet to my brain. And it, it explained how, like, if you run so much or if you cycle so much or if you swim so much, you would use so many, there's this many calories. It was only one page. My, my brain photographed it immediately and how many um, calories in an apple and a few other foods. That somehow just lodged in my brain immediately and from that moment on, I um, just exercised more and ate less. Well, first of all, I, I think a lot of us that have struggled with eating disorders can sort of remember that moment where something where our it like you said it's like magnetic to our brain where we're like oh there's the magic answer i think it's really important though first of all i want everyone to read your book it's called a girl named tim and the fact that your mom wanted a boy by the way this is not blaming your mother but the fact that your mom wanted a boy and then you started menstruating and developing breasts. The right there, we've got the seeds for the eating disorder because now your body is going against what your mother wants. And you and I talked before the before we started this interview that I had a very similar experience when I was younger. I didn't know really that there was like a difference between boys and girls and what girls do and don't do and all this stuff. And it was a very hot summer day. And my next door neighbor was a few years younger than me. And we were all running around and she took her shirt off because it was really hot. 
And I thought, oh, that looks fantastic. And I took my shirt off. And one of the neighborhood kids said to me, like, Karen, what are you doing? You're too old to take your shirt off. Like, you you have breasts. Like, put your shirt back on. And June, I felt my little psyche shatter. I didn't understand. I was like, what are these things? And of course, he didn't use the word breasts. But but what are they? Why are they here? And I already feel like they're going to be a problem in my life. And so this is where we talk about it's it's not about vanity it's not about always about body image it's not about food it the depth of what and of what goes into an eating disorder is unbelievable and so i didn't mean to interrupt but i just the it i just wanted to point this out and i uh, forgive me i'm rambling i'm just really excited to have you on so <laughs> i don't know if you have any thoughts well i i, I... I identify with what you're saying so well. And yes, the many, many, many layers of, um, you know, if, if I guess that's where if we have more um, knowledge for, um, for girls, like, yes, I definitely don't blame my mother. She, um, you know, she, she had her own backstory and, um I I was torn. I was torn between trying to please my mother and being being uh, and feeling I, I couldn't be what she wanted me to be, and and then I ended up making her even more sad because I wasn't eating her food and um, and so I withdrew into myself more and more and more, and for me I guess. Um, I was given a, a a small diary for Christmas that year, and um, I'd never known anyone who'd kept a diary, um, but I was so excited. And the very first page of that diary um, would have told any doctor that I had anorexia nervosa because it was full of figures <laughs> and um, times. Yeah, like the time I got up, the, the, the amount of minutes I've walked, the, the scraps of food that I ate, and uh, it would have given a lot of insight into my mind, but, of course, there was nobody there at that time. And um, But I, the diary did become very important to me uh, through my teenage years. I guess, you know, I was wondering trying to be like my other friends, uh, my friends and and yet not being like them and always being on the outer edge but not knowing why I was different. And, of course, my mother would say things like, you think about yourself too much and um, pull up your socks and why aren't you like the other girls? So it was I just threw into myself and, and found, tried to make sense of my world through writing in my diary. I think I wrote the word depression uh, for the first time when I was about 16. And this was at a time when it wasn't a common word in the, certainly where I was living. I was, yeah, I, I was in my 20s when um, <clears throat> it just became far too much. And by that time I'd married and <laughs> I had uh, fainted on the morning of my wedding from lack of nourishment 
Um, and I had to walk down the aisle and really there was three of us who got, went into the marriage that day, myself and my husband and, and anorexia, and it plagued my life. Um, things only got worse in my 20s and uh, I had four children by the time I was 26. I had to do a lot of soul searching in recovery um, because with my with a minister of religion because I actually felt guilty about having my children because you know pregnancy is nine months and I had it in my brain that by the time that night it was a defined period and I would aim to be eating three meals by the time I had my baby and that I would not, you know, and that after that I would always eat three meals a day. But, of course, I failed every time because that wasn't what the eating disorder was about. Um, I would only go a few, <clears throat> sorry, a few days. I'd only go a few days uh, after the birth of the baby and I would, um, my eating disorder would be out of control, of course. And so I would think about having another baby. But by the time I had four in four years, my body was absolutely worn out. And so I, I had a, um, a tubal ligation before I went home with the fourth. And after that, I really fell into deep depression because I didn't know what to hang on to to try and get hold of myself. So what happened after that was I eventually became suicidal and it was my love for my children, my four little children, that gave me the courage to go to the doctor for the first time and share some of this that I'd had within me since, since age 11 and um, and he he I think was a he he didn't tell me I was stupid. I was afraid that he would declare I was insane and lock me up in an asylum and take away my children. That was my biggest fear uh, because I thought I'm either an incredibly weak person for not being able to manage myself, or or I'm I'm insane. And um, and so, but he he put me on medication, which was no help at all. Um, I was told all sorts of things, like I had hypoglycemia, uh, and and put on a special diet, which only made things worse as well. But uh, one thing the doctors did say to me, and I'm always grateful, was they told me. And I was working with those children. It was work. I was a high-functioning person with an eating disorder. Um, and it was, I was working as a, as a journalist. And, and it was that that helped keep my, me on the right side of the sanity um, line in that I would write a story and that would give me a little bit of sense that I'm an okay person. Um, if, but anything to do with family life, uh, being a daughter, a sister, a mother, a wife, I, I felt uh, totally inadequate. And I, I'm going to, again, I'm going to interrupt. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> 
I don't want to gloss over something really important that you said, because I do have clients in their 30s and 40s and even 50s that have young children and are terrified if they reach out for the support that they deserve and need and require that their children will be taken from them. So I, I, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, June, but that's, that's not a small thing to just, you know, pass over. So how did you get the courage to say, I don't know what's going to happen and I can't continue on this path anymore. I need help. I mean, that took a lot of courage. Yes, it does take a lot of courage when we've had this thing inside us for a long time and we've been doing our best to manage it and and we've been failing and failing and failing and falling deeper into a hole of despair. It does take a lot of courage um, to reach out, um, but I do encourage, if it, anyone listening today who who has been struggling and in, in sharing my story I've had many women uh, uh, who have got in touch and they have been struggling for many years and I have reached out and got help then they think I can do that too because the way you're describing the way you were feeling is the way I'm feeling and I think it's, you know, I, I, I really want to emphasize that you can be helped. You can be helped. There's wonderful support out there for us today. And people like you, Karen, uh, you know, there's wonderful health professionals who are going to understand. And it doesn't matter how long you've been, like, I, I, I first accessed a doctor like at age uh, 28. Um, I was in my like 32, like there were four or five years of misdiagnosis. Um, but eventually I I did meet a psychiatrist who who could see me beyond all the layers. I, I really um you know, it, it, we have these layers that we have to work through to find, to, to heal. We, 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 we can't just put a Band-Aid on an eating disorder. It, it, it's about healing from the inside out. So, um, you know, I, I was, and there's probably others like me, I had to do the healing with a young family. Um, I'd be torn between wanting to stay home with my children and going to hospital, for instance. Um, I'd be torn, uh, you know, time, time away from family to get to, 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 to heal. Um, but it became essential. And I do encourage you, I, I talk with a lot of mothers today and they don't want to leave their young children. Um, but I say, look, if you do this now, you're going to be free to enjoy them as they grow older. And for me, I my, my children sort of grew up um, as they got into their teenage years um, and young adults um, have 
they actually became the adults and I was the child because, yeah, as you said uh, at the start of this um, podcast, uh, I was 55 when I finally got that sense of self to 51%, the one that when I tipped over the edge at age 11 and I tipped back and got myself back at 55. And and again, I have to interrupt. Sorry, June. I love when you talk about the 51% and I'll, I'll tell you why. First of all, I often say to clients, if there is one flicker, one ounce that is above the eating disorder, that's your healthy self right there. We're going to, we're going to capture that and we're going to work there. We're going to, we're going to grow that. And what you said is that 51% eventually turned into 95%. So I, 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 51% is that, that was a critical shift for you, correct? Correct. Yes. It took 25 years to get to the 51%. But after that, it was a rapid, uh, it was like the accelerator on my healthy self because my healthy self now had had more say than the eating disorder. It had a louder voice. And, and so uh, it was, it became a little, I don't know, I just, it was like a magic carpet ride. I just, um, my inside story began to come out and I hadn't shared it, my story with anyone for 44 years. So, um, you know, and, and I started, I started speaking with, um, you know, lovely therapists who who encouraged me to share my story, and um, and that was a really big thing. You're letting out something that you've been ashamed of for so many years, and suddenly um, people are respecting you and acknowledging you, and your it 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 was a really about growing the seed of self-belief and um and and getting you know and self-esteem but and becoming like not the outside person the inside person but becoming one person and letting the inside and the outside become whole and um that that was an amazing um um revelation and um i remember um i was at a my first eating disorder conference that i i went to um in about uh, 2010 I, I would have been um probably 58 59 years old and i felt <laughs> I felt very um, unworthy of being there because I was with all these health professionals who who had letters after their names and I was just someone who'd had an eating disorder. But I, what happened was um, I was listening to the keynote speakers at this eating disorder conference and they seemed to be describing my life, my my thoughts, my the way my brain worked, and and I wanted to stand up and call out, you're you're describing me, and that was a real revelation in knowing that that, that there was an understanding because for so long 
I hadn't had that. And that's how um, I developed a, a family in the eating disorder field. The relationship with my mother, uh, sadly, um, I love my mum, and uh, but I became alienated from my family of origin. Um, a long time had passed with the eating disorder, and of course, it wasn't only about the eating disorder. There were other issues. Doctors eventually um, managed to persuade me that for me to get. I don't like using the word well, but for me to get my to for me to be healthy, to have my healthy self, um, I I needed to to avoid people perhaps who who were not um, who were triggering for me. That was very very difficult to to cope with because I guess I would wanted to hear my mum say I love you. Um, but that was never going to happen. But what I've found out is I think she she had her own issues and she was an anxious person. And, you know, I I have compassion for, for my parents and my sister, but um, I, be, I was labelled the problem in the family. And so... What I found in the eating disorder field was a family who did not see me as a problem, but saw me as, as a person and who accepted me. And I have met, oh, in the last 15 years of, of you know, when I've been enjoying being me, um, you know, I've traveled the world and, and because, um, because that love of writing that I had um, I wasn't just write, writing for newspapers. Once I got to that 51%, I, I wanted to write my story for, for some years since my 30s because I wanted to write my story for my children because so they would understand who their mum was and not what, what maybe other family members were telling them. But I also knew I needed to be me before I could write it. So... I waited and I waited. And then, of course, I get to the 51%. And then I said to my psychiatrist, I um, a bit like, you know, that movie, A Beautiful Mind, I, I wanted to be me to write my book. I, and so I wanted to go off um, some of the antidepressants I'd been on for many years as well. Um, and over seven months with my psychiatrist gently guiding me, I achieved my goal. And so... That was when I wrote my memoir after 51%. And, um, and that helped a lot. In I, I kept diaries all these years, so I had everything was documented. I'm really glad now that I did keep my diaries. Some recently in the last few years also done a PhD in um, creative writing. Yeah, in creative writing and looking at diary writing or, or writing uh, when you have an eating disorder. And I, I was really uh, honoured to have 70 people, um, men and women, uh, around the world, um, many of them from the, from the United States, 
um, who I, I wrote a blog and I just invited anyone who'd had an eating disorder and also uh, had kept a journal for any period of time, would they like to share that? So these were private diaries. The response was amazing. 70 of them were, were chosen to accompany me on my um, on my PhD over a pe period of three years. And um, it, it was, I felt very honoured to have, it was a bit, I felt a bit like Canterbury Tales and we were on a journey together. And it was, it was really um, enlightening because I didn't, I didn't know that others had also kept a diary like this, and um, and and for me to convince the publisher, which was Routledge in London, that um, this was a book worthy of publication, because initially they said yes, it's a great concept, but we you know we want your clinicians to to be the main voice, and I said no, this time. It's it's the patient's voice. It's the it's the people with the eating disorders. They're on their it's their main voice. They're on the front of the stage, and the clinicians are behind them. Um, and um, full marks to Routledge for recognizing that the patient's voice is important. And um, I know that we know that today. I know that today today we know that the answers to the eating disorder are within. And by listening to stories, listening to, to people who have eating disorders, that's where we find the answers. And that's it's in those dark spots that we haven't got to in, in the soul and in the mind. That's where the answers are. And through storytelling, um, you know, we we can write, share things that maybe the therapist hasn't thought of yet. Uh, or you can give the therapist, you can help yourself uh, and help the therapist to help you by, by sharing, uh, you know, sharing a journal with the therapist. So for me, the writing uh, has become very helpful and also a way of connecting and helping people feel listened to and and acknowledged as you know a person first and foremost and we just happen to be a person with with an eating disorder but I you know people say what's recovered and for me it's more about ongoing healing and for as long as I live I will continue to to um, strive to improve my quality of life every day and it's really important to to know that every you know every no, doesn't matter if we've had this illness a long time we can make even small improvements in, in our quality of life. And if we can replace that eating disorder um, pull with a passion, we can achieve great things. Um, for me, the writing was that. I, I want to point out something that you wrote and it's it's talking, it's it's just, it's a, acknowledging what you just said. And you said in your paperwork, small steps are giant steps when an eating disorder has been part of one's life for a long time. 
for me, recovery is the freedom to live a full and purposeful life. It, I say to clients all the time, small steps. That is huge. It is eating disorders are rigid. They are, they are terrifying to walk away from, to, to process, to do a small step is huge. And I highlighted that in your paperwork because, because I thought that was so powerful. So I apologize for interrupting. That's going to be the title of this episode. I'm so sorry for interrupting June. Cause that's all I did, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, small steps are important. And, um, you know, I can remember one girl describing to me how she ate, like a lettuce leaf to her was like climbing, you know, Mount Everest. Uh, it, it seems small to anybody else, but to someone with an eating disorder um, can seem absolutely ginormous. And, and it's not only with food, but it's in social interactions, um, you know, getting brave enough to, to go along to a writing group or, um, you know, to, to go to a social occasion. It takes so much courage to do the, what other people just don't even think twice about. And I, I say it's a bit like, driving a car we, we have to be using the manual gears rather than the automatic we we have to be so self-aware and conscious of every every move we're making initially um, the diary can be really journal can be really helpful because in practicing new thoughts and I, I guess one of the things I felt is found is that Fear is a wall of nothing through which I can pass. And the more my 51% came after I'd been brave at, at um, attending a, a family wedding, I was terrified. But my therapist had helped me practice being a beautiful tropical bird before the um, event. So it was a bit like... You know, if you've got something scary coming up, that you arm yourself like a soldier going into battle. And for me, my my main protection was was imagery that day, and so I could fly above anyone that were that was making me feel really nervous. And it was through confronting these fears gradually, gradually, with help from the therapist that. The rewards would come in, in getting through yet another layer of fear and another layer of fear because it, it, the fear of is a very controlling feature of an eating disorder. You know, these fears, some fears of these fears are about food, but a lot of them are about other things. I also want to point out something else that you wrote about, which going to the writing, which I think is so powerful. And you said, Writing has been my sword during the develop development of my eating disorder. Diary writing was a survival tool. Later, the diary became entwined with the eating disorder as a coping tool. Then during my many years of recovery work, it became a self-healing tool. And today it is a self-maintenance and self-growth tool. 
for you, writing has kept you whole. It has kept you vulnerable. It has kept you connected. And you also go on to say that it, it and forgive me, I'm going to keep on reading. Writing has provided me with a lifeline, a voice, and a companion. It has provided comfort, connection, and an avenue of self-expression. This is the message that you're trying to get across to people. This is how you work with, with people that come to you to say, there is a tool that is all yours. It's, it's all from within. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing right now? Yes, I, I feel very blessed um, because after I wrote a girl called Tim, in Australia, we have the Butterfly Foundation, which is like your NIDA organization. Claire Vickery, who had started the Butterfly Foundation, she was she encouraged me to, to get more involved and to speak. At the time, she knew a little bit about my story about the sad, um, my sadness about being as not understood by my family with my illness. And at that time, family-based treatment was um, coming well-known. And she said, you, you need to speak to um, Professor well, Daniel LaGrange, who was at the University of Chicago. So here's little me way down the corner of Australia. And, and I bravely tapped an email to Daniel in, in Chicago. And um, as a result of that, I caught a plane to Chicago and, and uh, went to the university and met him outside his door. And as a result of that, a conversation. I asked him a question while I was there. I said, what keeps you going with, with, with the work you do? And he said, when it's a um, parents come back to my door with their child and they, they stand there and they say, I've got my kid back, which became the title of the, a book I, I then wrote, My Kid Is Back. And that's about 10 families. So all with, with who have experienced family-based treatment with their child. From that, uh, yes, I've written another nine books. So um, I've, I've had the honour of work with Daniel, uh, with, with Professor Janet Treasure in, in, um, and, and Eureka Smith and, um, oh, many, many, many wonderful researchers. And I remember Janet Treasure, um, she said to me one day, June, your stories are like fairy dust on my, on my research. The way these the researchers recognise that the stories we have within were how they learn, and together we we can keep on raising the level of understanding and awareness in sharing our stories. So, from that, I then had I was encouraged to do my PhD, and and so I did that using writing as a therapy for eating disorders. The Diary Healer was the book that was published as a result of my PhD. And today, I love mentoring people. I help people like Betsy <laughs> Betsy Brenner, who uh, who introduced us. Yeah, yes, she had experienced an eating disorder in midlife and wanted to uh, write her story and in doing so it, it was a very healing exercise for her and now she's helping others and she's amazing and there are so many like this and 
I always rem remember one thing that Janet Treasure said to me once um, is that, you know, it can take about 9,000 repetitions for a new thought to develop a healthy thought uh, before it sort of becomes automatic. And so, but writing can, can not only thinking a thought, but writing it down uh, emphasizes, it helps it register more and we can gradually overtake those previous eating disorder thoughts with automatic healthy thoughts. So I work with, with people today in the narrative. I'm, I'm, I'm very honoured to also be writing a book at the moment with David Epstein, who was a um, pioneer with, with Michael White in narrative therapy. I love finding answers with words of my friends and people in their early 20s to people in their late 60s. I think the language of an eating disorder is universal. And it doesn't matter where I am talking with people in the world, we all get along really, really well. And <laughs> we it's like we've known each other forever. And it's because it doesn't matter what language we speak or what age we are, the eating disorder voice is the same. Uh, it gives you a, an immediate um, rapport with anybody. But I love using the written word to, to as a mentor for people. So I have my website, which is thediaryhealer.com. I have a, a blog on that where I have people um, as guest contributors to that because I think all the more voices we have, uh, like your podcast, I think the more voices we have, there's a little bit that people can connect with in every story and see that, ah, that and get that insight, you know, if they can be helped, I can be helped too, because you can be, for sure. Yeah. June, that is beautiful and a beautiful place to start winding this interview down. I love what you said. Is there anything else? And, and I am going to encourage everyone to go to the show notes so they can get all your information so people can reach out to you and read all of your incredible books. Is there anything else before we end that I didn't ask you or that you just wanted to share? You're reminding me that my psychiatrist used to say, "June, you write better than you talk." So I, I, love to, that. I, I it was because I'd kept my story in for so long; it took so long to come out. So I would take reams of paper along, and he would read it. I would, I would like to acknowledge that you know I feel very, very blessed today. I lost my marriage because of my eating disorder. You know, but my husband remained a rock for me through all these years. Um, today, we're grandparents. Today, we've got five beautiful grandchildren in our age, nine to 15, good grief. We share the Christmas shopping. We're always together for the birthdays and the parties. I I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I didn't give up because life is so good. And so I, I love to tell people if they're feeling hopeless, if they're feeling they just can't go on, I say, please hang on there. There is hope. There is hope. There will be a little thread that you can cling to and you can then weave that with another thread and another thread and another thread and create a whole new pattern for yourself of life, 
I am so glad I didn't give up in my 20s. I'm so glad that I got the courage to ask for help. And I'm so glad I didn't give up on looking for that help. If the first person you see is not so helpful, try again. There'll be someone who, who understands you. You know, we've got so many wonderful organizations like yours today, Karen, where you can get good information and, and seek help. Because you can, you know, you might be wanting to have children. You may, you know, whatever your family situation is, life is going to get better. And there's going to be, there is life beyond the eating disorder. It's worth fighting for. June, I cannot thank you enough for being a guest, for being you, for sharing your words with listeners because your message is incredibly important. I think I'm actually going to I'm going to sign off here. I think we're we're going to end. So June, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you Karen. It's been a wonderful honor and I hope we get to speak in person. Uh, one day, which is becoming more more likely now, the world's looking at a safer place. Thank you. I agree. I agree. So again, thank you. And thank you for getting up and doing this interview at four in the morning, your time. You're, you're an incredible soul, June. So thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, Ken. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.